It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 210, with Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com and Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. This week, the tech divide, new and old, practical AI, search engines, and the future of programming. Good afternoon, Gary. Hey, Leo. How's it going? going? (laughs) So what's, what's new and exciting in the world of technology for you? Well, nothing. But despite that, um, we'll, get, we'll, we'll dive in and talk about uh, AI. No, uh, actually, this is, it's really doesn't have anything to do with AI, which is refreshing. Um, I went to a, an event, a, a, like a concert, but it was comedy, not music. And um, the interesting thing is, is I had two pieces of technology that I used rapid succession. One was for the ticketing to get into the show. Right. And the other was for the parking garage. Okay. And the results couldn't have been more different. So getting into the show, it was uh, interesting because the tickets were on phones. That's not unusual. Right. Uh, what was unusual for me, it was the first time it was NFC. So when I went to my Apple wallet, same place as before, I think I bought the ticket. It was probably Ticketmaster. And then there was a little add to Apple wallet and all that. And I went in, but instead of it bringing up a visual representation of the ticket with you know a code, um, it didn't. It just had the text on it saying, you know, hold your phone near the ticketing device or whatever. And uh, everybody else's was the same. And as we went through the line, uh, basically the little scanners, handheld scanners that the uh, ticket takers, uh, that's an antiquated term, ticket takers, uh, Mm -hmm. had uh, basically just beeped as you waved your phone near it, which was great because there wasn't the struggle of like pointing your phone at their, you know, at their little camera to read it and everything, which um, always slows things down. Uh, the NFC meant everybody was just going, you know, beep, 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 you know, all the way through the line was just moving. Matter of fact, they, the one line divided into four lines just before the ticket takers. Um, so they could have four going at once because the throughput was enough that, I mean, it was just flowing really fast. So, so that was really cool, and it was painless and easy. And it's like, ah, yes, this is this is the culmination of finally having you know your tickets <laughs> things on your right. phone. Right. Then the parking garage after the show, well, you know, before and after the show, was like a system for probably the early '90s, um, where you know you got a little ticket as you went in, automatic little system gave you a ticket, the arm lifted up, and then you're supposed to pay. Uh, with uh, a machine when you're leaving. So you go to leave and buy the elevators. There's a little like pay here and then right. your ticket's ready to go. And and I did so, but of course, people sometimes people don't. So that means that they also take credit cards at the actual gate because right. otherwise people will be like, oh, I forgot. And, you know, and everybody's stuck. Um, so uh, there were like three gates going out and we got stuck there for, at least 20 minutes. <laughs> wow. Um, it, it was like a nightmare. It was, um, it was, you're in this underground garage. You left, you were actually told when you paid for the ticket that you must exit within 20 minutes. And you're like, I was trying to exit immediately, but I'm stuck in this line. Um, so I hope that doesn't uh, run into trouble. But there was, you know, I noticed there was one person that was stuck at the front of the line I was in uh, that, um, was ha- actually there were four lines and the fourth line they were stuck in and I was it, a few cars behind them and then they claimed they got out of their car and confessed to everybody behind them that it's broken 
right? They were trying to feed their card in multiple times. It's broken. This one's broken. Okay, so I immediately got into lane three, right. which was fine. Uh, somebody let me in. That was good. And um, and then that person there <laughs> promptly went into lane three ahead of me, uh, a few cars ahead of me, and then got to the, the front, and they were having the same trouble. So it's like, you know, maybe it's you. <laughs> maybe it's your card. Maybe it's, I don't know, but you're having trouble, right? Right. Um, and then the funny thing is that lane four, which was empty uh, at that point, somebody else pulled up to it, had, who had not been around previously, and they went up to it. And I was like, well, what are they thinking? What do you, they think we're all waiting in these three lo super long lines and line and lane four is empty? So they went up to it and they immediately got at, you know, the, they did something with the machine and immediately it opened up and they left. So I pulled back into lane four. And two cars in front of me uh, went through pretty quickly. Of course, you know, I paid with my uh, with my ticket at the elevator. I went up to the machine. I was like, all right, here we go. Because all the other lanes were slow, too. Everybody was having troubles. There's all this stuff. And I take my card. I feed it into the machine. And two seconds later, the arm opens up and says, done, you know, go. I was like, why? Why is everybody else having trouble? And I was able to just go you know, like what is everybody else doing you know they're obviously a lot of them were not paying but there was nobody actually on site which was the interesting thing so there was actually a point for a while where there were three lanes and all three were clogged up and it's like you've got 100 people here trapped in a in a garage underground um and nobody could go it was really interesting it was like okay this technology system is failing miserably and the technology system for getting into the venue for the show was succeeding fantastically. So, yeah, big just juxtaposition of of similar technology systems. And I almost went. I actually almost. I was thinking, you know, if I went to that fourth lane that's empty, uh, because it's, somebody said it's broken. It's like, is there a way to open that arm? Like, could I actually get in there and open it up? Because the thing is, I've paid. Right. My ticket is paid i'm done right so if i went there and i like i had my wife take the wheel and i held the arm up and we drove <laughs> out it's like what crime have i committed i've paid right so i was considering that at that point where all three lanes were stuck um anyway frustrating frustrating stuff it, it certainly can be. Um, yeah, parking is like the bane of a lot of different places. So it's interesting. The um, uh, Where we get our healthcare has an underground mm. parking lot. And they had been using uh, the ticketing system. And in fact, yeah. it was worse because uh, you take a ticket when you get in, but then on your way out, you actually had to pay a person. So that part wasn't even automated. It was like hand Ooh. the ticket to a person. Yeah, They look at it and tell you how much money you would need to give them. Um, then during COVID, they basically said, oh, no, parking's free. Just open the yeah, gates. Yeah. yeah. We'll just let everybody in and out as, as needed. And then uh, I think it was earlier this year, they switched to a different system, which I found really fascinating. They're using license plate recognition. So mm. basically, you know, m most of the people that go to the to this uh, parking lot are, of course, repeat customers. They're visiting their doctor or doing whatever. Yeah. And uh, the first time you go, you have to either uh, text your license plate number to a number or yeah. scan a QR code. 
which then I think loads an app on your on your phone, um, and you register yourself. And then from then on, uh, every time you come and go, there's nothing to do. Um, mm -hmm. it, it recognizes you coming in and it recognizes you leaving and, uh, you know, charges you according to the difference in time. Yeah, uh, actually, can, like, even, even the best of all worlds, right? There's nothing to scan at all. They're just watching for you. Right. And that's how a lot of the, you know, road toll systems work now. Um, I, I do like, so I live at, you know, the, the urban life while well, you've got the suburban life. Right. Uh, mine's better, obviously, because uh, <laughs> suburban is not obviously it's not as good. Um, but uh, but no. So, you know, we've got parking meters and and parking lots everywhere. Mm -hmm. And pretty much all of them at this point have been converted to pay by phone. Um, so whether right. you're parking on the street and it's a government owned spot uh, or you're pulling into a private lot, usually there's one of two apps uh, that have very similar names. Um, that you see, and you there's a number, usually a five digit number, but the uh, geolocation will just usually guess the number right away when you go to the app. That's and then of cool. course, you've got your payment information in. You've got if you have multiple cars, it will list like oh which car are you in. Uh, so I've got old cars. I've got cars I've rented in the past. They're in the list. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I, you know, so it's like this car. Yes, I am in this zone. And then you pay. And then the great thing is, is that. Um, it's you know easy and fast. You can do it not at the location, so you can get out of the car and start walking towards where you're going and complete the transaction while you're walking. Mm -hmm. And it will warn you when the time's about to go up. You get a notification. You get the opportunity to add more time without having to go back out to your car. Cool. Uh, they're really nice systems, and they work really well. I did run into a situation uh, where there was frustrating. It was a parking garage that had that same thing you were talking about. They it was all set up with an advanced payment system, and then during COVID, they just said, "Nope, never mind." <laughs> right. Right. They just took it all away. And right. in fact, uh, and I go to pick up uh, food at a a place nearby. It's a very urban location. You have to pay for parking somewhere right. uh, if you're going to stop your car. So I pull into the garage which is right underneath the location. And I, the, the actual thing that gives you the tickets when you go in is actually gone now. Like it's been sure. removed. Yep. But when you go in, all the signs that say that you must pay with the machine in the stairwell are still there. When you go to the machine in the stairwell, it's turned off. It's unplugged actually. Right. Like no power. It's not there, you know, going on anymore. All right. So I guess whatever the pandemic, they just said, never mind. And there's plenty of spaces in this garage. So then you go up to the restaurant and then you have to exit onto the street out of the parking garage. The restaurant's right next door to the door that you exit. You pick up your food, you go back to the door. And what does the door do? It says, scan your parking ticket to unlock the door <laughs> to get back into the parking garage. So you can't because there are no more tickets. You whoopsie. can't scan anything. Yeah, whoops. And that system still works. The door is definitely not open, right? Um, the funny, so you have to walk around the building into the entrance to the parking garage, like right. where cars go. Or as I noticed that when you go up the stairs before you exit the building, there's actually a side door into a chicken place. So you can go directly to the chicken place. So I just walk into the chicken place like I'm going to eat there. I just walk past the front counter and then out the side door into the stairway. <laughs> um, but it's like it's such a weird, weird yeah. 
thing that they, okay, it's like when you first start off, they, they remove the technology, but by the time you're actually trying to get back, the technology is still in place. And it's just been that way. It's been that way for years, a couple of years, at least. That's so bizarre. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird thing. Anyway, parking weirdness technology is like, yeah. I mean, I am glad I did actually hate in the urban environment. I did hate how you pay for parking before the phone apps. Yes. When, you know, well, a long time ago, you'd walk up to this machine where you'd have to stuff cash into it. I still um, have a collection of quarters in one of my cars. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, well, do you remember, I, do you ever run into the, one of the ones where it's like this big box, it's a big horizontal box, and you actually have to put cash into the slot that right. corresponds with your space. And those that eventually got replaced with machines that you you have to like, you know, type in your your license plate code and what parking spot you're in and pay with the right. card. And then I always ran into the same story I ran into before. The person in front of me struggled with the machine for like 15 minutes claiming it just didn't work. They walk away telling me it's broken. And then I go up to it and say, well, I'm not going to take their word for it. And then in 30 seconds, I'm done. I'm like, why, why, why were they having trouble? I don't understand. But you know, now it's so much better uh, knowing that any parking situation, you could even, of course, buy parking spaces on apps before you arrive. So there are private garages that don't have a public option. In other words, you have to show some sort of code or something to get in. But if you use a parking app beforehand, you can purchase one of those codes, know that there's a spot waiting for you. Right. And then enter it like you're one of the patrons of that private parking garage. So it's kind of interesting. And that's also takes a lot of guesswork out. You don't have to leave 15 minutes early again to find parking downtown. You'd be like, nope, I already spent, you know, $8 and purchased a spot across the street. I know we can get in and, and park right away. Yep. yep. Technology is really cool when it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we cannot apparently have an episode where we don't talk about AI. Yeah. We, we used to not be able to talk. Uh, we used to have to be able to talk about um, Elon. Those days yeah. have apparently passed. Yeah. And now we're, we have to talk about AI. He was so, afraid that AI would replace him and it has on our show. Yes. <laughs> um, so one of the things I was thinking about as I was prepping for today's um, episode is that we talk when we talk about AI, we end up talking a lot about um, the what I'd call the flagship kind of instances of AI: Chat GPT, Midjourney, Dolly, um, Copilot in Windows, Bard, um, whatever they're doing with Bing, those kinds of things. These are the really big places where. Uh, AI is in a lot of people's faces and it's where it's getting much of its publicity. But I've been noticing very quietly, sometimes not so quietly because it is a marketing um, technique, that AI has been creeping into some of the products that I use. Um, and, you know, not necessarily with all of the same flash and press that some of these others are getting. Now, Photoshop is one example, and admittedly, it had a lot of press and a lot of flash, and a lot of the Photoshop uh, YouTubers spent a fair amount of time talking about it. But now it's kind of, you know, that kind of stuff has faded into the background, and people are just using it. Uh, same thing with another uh, graphics tool that I use extensively, Canva. I don't remember if you use it or not. Uh, no, no, I don't. Yeah. Canva is actually very cool. It's great for folks that... Um, um, you know, really aren't designers aren't interested in learning a tool like Photoshop. Um, it, it does a lot. Um, and it now has uh, 
you know, AI, some AI tools. Uh, like I said, they're often often dis just simply disguised as features. Uh, Canva has a background remover. Canva has a few other things that they've added recently. Uh, I think they actually give it a different name. They tend to call things magic rather than specifically referring to AI unless you mm. actually look deeper into the uh, uh, marketing material. You know, we use the power of AI, yada, yada. But they end up calling their feature something else. Um, and, you know, obviously... For a long time, we've had grammar tools, and grammar tools now are starting to improve based on uh, you know large language models. Grammar, um, you know, the 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 fact that uh, one of our early criticisms of ChatGPT is that it wrote really really well, um, it just lied. But uh, the fact is, it wrote really really well, and that's the kind of stuff that grammar tools end up can you know can okay. end up leveraging quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so I just, you know, I just was reflecting idly on the fact that, you know, as much as we might be, uh, I don't know, concerned about AI, you know, the big stuff, uh, some are even scared by AI, some are opposed to AI for various reasons. There are a bucket load of scenarios where not only can AI help us, but it already is. And I just find that really, really fascinating. Um, and I started looking for it now, whenever I'm using a tool to see, you know, when they add some features or, um, uh, you know, when they, when they announce something new, uh, there's almost always now, you know, some, some AI or something that could be AI, uh, embedded in it. I realize it's the thing to do. I mean, I totally get it from a marketing perspective. Um, it's like, you know, your product is old if it doesn't have AI, but many products are doing it in the right way where they're actually applying AI in, in ways that make a lot of sense for whatever the product is. Don't know if you've encountered any of that. I assume that oh, yeah. it's starting to, to show up in various places for you as well. Yeah. And, you know, in the Apple ecosystem, there's already been some things that are AI powered. Uh, like for instance, they added the, uh, you know, the ability to cut, you know, uh, grab a subject out of an image um, so that you can, you know, just grab yourself or, you know, somebody else or your right. dog or whatever yeah. out of a photo. And that, I mean, that's essentially, it's, it's an AI feature. Mm -hmm. um, they haven't really been taught, they they don't hide the fact that it's AI being used. As a matter of fact, they talk up the fact that their, their silicon, you know, um, uh, system on a chips, you know, the uh, M processors, right. that they have these neural network, you know, cores on them. That that's what they're for is is to do this stuff on device rather than having to go off to a server. Yeah, I think um, we talked some about that last yeah. week. Yeah, yeah. And they there's actually new rumors this week, um, which uh, that the next versions of all the operating systems from Apple, the ones that'll be introduced probably in June of next year, are going to be heavily about uh, AI. And I think what is probably going to happen is it's probably going to be more features like that. Like they introduced, uh, there's text um, prediction features that are new that aren't like the prediction features before where it just suggested, you know, you start typing the first couple letters of a word and it kind of says, oh, do you mean this word? Um, right. Or even like what here's like what I think the next word is most likely to be, but even right. a couple words in advance, um, those are using something new that's kind of AI-like or large language model like, um, I think Apple is probably going to be just continuing with more of that. What I think is going to happen with the next versions of like iOS 18, for instance, is they're going to start calling it AI. So they've been basically continue with what they're doing, 
but it's like, oh, you want AI as a buzzword? We'll give you it as a buzzword. That's my prediction. It'll be like a few new things. And then they're going to all start saying, you know, oh, you know, the AI update to Mac OS and iOS and iPad OS and all of that. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure it's I, I don't really think it's going to be the kind of thing where you'll be talking with a chat GPT or, you know, Bard like, you know, AI system. I think it'll be more built into things like what you're saying. Although at the same time, the rumors point out that you know Siri could get a major update with all of this. I don't, I don't see Siri jumping to become like Bard and ChatGPT, like just, you know, just like that. Like all of a sudden, it'll be doing that. Right. I don't see Apple doing that, but I do see how it's easy for people with you know writing rumors articles to hear that. Oh yeah, Apple's working on more AI. Let me mention that probably Siri is going to get a big up. Well, I do have to admit that that the buzzwordification of AI um, yeah. has been frustrating, just because uh, it, you know all of the all of the scenarios are playing out in real time. And by all of the scenarios, I mean there are people that are using the term AI when they have nothing like it, but they have to use the term. There are people that have been doing AI for a really long time. You know AI-like things, and are now finally saying, "Okay, fine, we'll go ahead and call it AI." Kind of what you were referring to with Apple, um, and then there are applications that are adding AI-like functionality in applications that actually have no call for AI functionality, but it's right. the buzzword. And if they want to sell their product, they have to have something that's AI. Right. And then, of course, there's the good stuff, right? The applications that are using it and using it for the right things. Um, the uh, um, you know, the fact is, uh, we the, the industry has a buzzword problem, and this is the current one. Uh, you know, it was, um, what was it? It was NFTs before, and it was blockchain <laughs> before that. And, you know, yeah. um, the, this, the thing that I have with, with AI that makes, to me at least, makes it different um, is not the marketing side, which is really all the buzzwordification is about. But I think that there are some real tangible things that are coming of it that um, that are going to make a difference that people can use. Um, and I think a lot of what we see today may not make it, but a lot of what we see today are certainly the stepping stones that will get us somewhere. Yep. yep. So I realized the other day that I have done something, I've started doing something that I never, uh, no, I shouldn't say that. I never, I've tried to do periodically for years and I've never been able to until now. And that's very simply, I'm actually no longer using Google as my primary search engine. Um, in the past, the reason I switched to Google originally, many years ago, I think I was using AltaVista before it. Um, the reason I switched to Google was because it just had superior search results. Whatever it was I was looking for, if it was online, Google would find it for me. Um, and I would periodically try you know, the other search engines, um, which these days boils down to Bing. Um, I, I know that there are a couple of others, but a couple of the ones you think are different really aren't different because they're getting right. their results from Bing as well. Um, and, you know, every time I tried Bing or a Bing, a Bing clone, um, I was always disappointed. I was always not getting the results that I needed to get from Google. And at the same time, I was getting more and more frustrated with Google for uh, the fact that it just has so many ads. Um, and what's really frustrating from the point of view of the job that you and I do is that 
consumers, the average consumer doesn't necessarily know the difference, doesn't re necessarily recognize the difference. They just click on whatever's at the top of the list. And now on Google, at the top of the list is not the first result for your search. It's the first result for whoever was willing to pay the most to be there. Right. Um, so I have been playing, as it turns out, with DuckDuckGo, uh, which is, uh, it's, like I said, it's one of the ones that I believe gets its uh, search results from Bing. And I have been pleasantly surprised. I have been getting the results that I need without having the results page be cluttered with advertisements. Um, it's, it's, like I said, it's actually refreshing uh, to, to not have that. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that, don't know how or why, but the comparison between Bing and Google has now, I'll say that they're probably equal in terms of search results and a Bing-like search engine succeeds uh, or a DuckDuckGo uh, succeeds simply because the user experience is so much more pleasant. Now that's to say, I, I saw a headline earlier this morning that said, you know, Bing's market share is still, is, is falling uh, again uh, from seven point some percent to six point some percent. So Google is still the big gorilla in the room, but I think that a lot of that is because of Google's ability to market their thing. Um, if I'm not mistaken, they still pay Apple a bucket load of money for it to be the default search engine. Yeah, in some interesting uh, news on that this week, actually. Oh, really? I, 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 that. I... Well, there, there's, you know, um, I guess hearings going on about that. Right. Um, and uh, somebody for Google was on the stand, or I don't know what it is, not stand, but, you know, they're, they're, they're being interviewed right. in these right. hearings. Um, and they let slip the amount that Google uh, pays right. to Apple. Which is a very large number, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what it was. Let's see uh, if I could find out really quick. 36% uh, of all search revenue for that, um, for everything that goes to the you know Apple ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's it. So 30 they're giving 36% up. Apple just just by saying just by Apple having Google as like the default. Right. And there's got to be something that's the default, right? Sure. I mean, and Apple say, doesn't have oh, their own. Yeah. No no search. Yeah. You, you can't do searches until you choose one. You know, it's just gonna there's gonna be one that's chosen as the right. default. So by that being Apple, 36%, which is going to be billions of dollars. Right. Um, to do that. But, you know, it, it. but you said, you know, an interesting thing you said about like Apple doesn't have one. Right. But the idea being that this is why. Right. Because Apple certainly could have its own. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, if DuckDuckGo could do it, Apple could certainly do it. <laughs> sure. I mean, and, and for that matter, if Microsoft could do it, Apple could certainly do it. Right. Yes. Um, so the thing is, is that Apple actually wins twice here because they basically you know, Google's basically paying them to not create their own. Like mm -hmm. we'll give you 36% if you don't make your own and just use ours as the default. And that Apple doesn't have to spend the money to make or maintain its own search engine. Right. So yep. it's kind of like, you know, I mean, it's it's from a business standpoint, it's genius. Yeah. Um, one day it will end. 
whether it's because of government legislation somewhere, right? It might not even be like the United States. I mean, it could right. be a place like Britain or Germany or whatever that says, nope, no can't do anymore. And Apple's like, well, we got to do it for one country. Might as well do it for the whole world. Um, and for that, I, you know, just like Apple's a huge company and they probably have everything in research and development you can possibly imagine. So I imagine that there's a small team somewhere that actually has an Apple search engine mm -hmm. just in case one would be needed. They don't have to start from scratch, right. uh, you know, but um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, anyway, that's the news from this week. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and like I said, I, I think that um, that really is, you know, Google's. Uh, relationship, not just with Apple, but with other places that um, ensures that the machine you get uses Google as the default search engine out of the box. And most people don't change it. Most people don't know how to change it. Most people don't care. Um, but uh, like I said, for me, uh, I'm finally at a point where I feel comfortable changing just because to me, it's always been about the search results. I'll put up with a lot of ads if the search results are truly better. Uh, but that has no longer been the case. I've been very pleased with what I found on uh, on DuckDuckGo and Bing and others. So that's mm -hmm. what I'm uh, switching over to. Yep. We haven't talked well, enough about AI yet. No. No. So let's, <laughs> let's bring it up again. Um, there was an interesting article. Do you read the New Yorker? Uh, occasionally. Very occasionally. occasionally. I never do. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, it's just not, yeah, I know there's people that are fans that, you know, that's, that's part of their reading and all. And I just, I just, I guess never been there. So I don't know how typical this article is of New Yorker style material, but it's an article. Um, and it's about, uh, you know, coder considering considers the waning days of the craft. Basically the implication here is that AI will you know, be, AI is already doing a lot of work for programmers and eventually will take over programming and programmers won't be needed anymore. Um, I've seen a lot of different people mentioning this recently. Sure. Um, and so I thought, okay, here's a long, apparent, uh, looked like a thoughtful piece. So I'll dig in and see what, see what the argument is. And I wasn't, I wasn't, so, definitely wasn't sold in the argument. I mean, just, again, I don't know the New Yorker style, but a lot of the stuff in the article was anecdotal. It made for very nice reading just about this one person's experience mm -hmm. um, with, you know, coding and how now they're using AI to do a little bit of it mm -hmm. in a way or, and seeing another person they know who's using it a lot, um, very anecdotal it was kind of missing a lot for me in terms of like, well, what are the numbers like in software shops where there are hundreds or thousands of programmers? <clears throat> what are they doing? You know, talk to professional industry experts and industry like, um, like people that, you know, uh, track things and all that, uh, take surveys, like none of that's there, <laughs> right? It's just all like, here's my experience as a coder where I think things are going just based on what I've been doing. And mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff, the programming the person's involved with, they don't have a computer science degree or a computer engineering degree. Mm -hmm. They don't mention specifically, but they, they imply they have some sort of math degree maybe. And that they kind of got into coding mostly as a hobby, but then got into professionally uh, pretty easily uh, mm -hmm. based on that hobby. So I was kind of like put off. I was like, hey, you're throwing this out there. People read the headline are like, yeah, I heard programming's no longer going to be a thing. And it's just a comes a, kind of a whimsical article about the whole deal. Uh, it did make me think about a few things, though. Uh, one of the things is is that uh, talks about how you know AI could take over uh, coding, 
but I always think of coding as part partially like an art because I yes. kind of feel artistic when I'm doing it. Yep. And yep. the thing that gets me is we already have, you know, Dolly and, uh, you know, the other uh, things that make art in mm -hmm. AI. Um, it's never going to change like when people paint because they enjoy it, right? Correct. That it doesn't solve that problem. You know, if you paint as like this is my hobby, this is what I enjoy, this is or or it's therapeutic for me or whatever, um, having AI do it for you is not a substitute. So that's I think it's the same for coding. Like the part of coding that I that I really like, like if I could just ask an AI to make a game for me that does this, this, and this. Um, I'm not going to get that satisfaction from it. Just like somebody painting isn't going to get the satisfaction out of typing in uh, something into an AI. It does expand the number of people that have access to be able to do things, certainly, mm -hmm. but it doesn't replace it as uh, an art. Um, and, you know, the it also, the article ignored the fact that a lot of what was being, uh, like what AI is being used for um, there are other things that actually do that now. So he talks about like uh, getting stuck, not knowing where to go. Um, and AI was able to go and say, oh, here's how to do it. Or here's a strategy you didn't think of or something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, I've always done that. That's always, but it's it's been other people, either people I've talked to or people that have posted things online right. or other resources, right? So, and I really, because I had, I definitely have been, uh, you know, been using AI and coding, and I've been using AI bef uh, coding before AI and all of this, and I get the same feeling, the same like gap uh, in the in productivity has been filled by AI as was previously filled by just looking up things online or talking to other people. Mm -hmm. um, it's you, you say, okay, oh, how do you do this, right? And if if you have just a complete void, like before the internet, because I've actually been programming since before the internet, as you have. <laughs> um, before the internet, you had manuals, right? If you didn't have it, somebody else that also worked in the same programming language in the same environment as you, you right. had manuals. So you would get out a manual and say, well, let me go and look some things up. Let me see what what functions in this environment might pertain to this thing, right? And you would try that. And that was horrible <laughs> with uh, being able to look up things online, you can actually find somebody else that's actually talking about a technique that uses this function and this command and this, you know, database type thing and all that to do it. And that's actually a lot better. And now you can just do that with AI, which actually is great because other people were kind of annoying. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> uh, well, a lot of times it was simply because they weren't solving the exact same problem you were. Okay. They were solving a similar problem. Well, to be fair, there are some annoying people out there too. Well, yes, but they, they were solving a problem that was similar to yours. So you came across it while searching for your solution and you're able to take their solution and adjust it. Whereas with AI, you could simply can, you know, get right to the kind of solution that you wanted to. So I, I don't see it as like replacing it. And even the examples he gave in this article weren't exactly um, like, just do the whole thing for me. It was like I'm stuck on this, right? Like, you know, help me, help me out here. What could, what could be done? Uh, also, like one of the examples he gave was uh, really uh, hit home for me because he talked about how that even as a programmer, creating an iPhone app uh, for him was impossible. Like 
and he talked briefly about it and knew exactly what he was talking about. You know, you get into Xcode on a Mac, you start making an iPhone app, uh, it, 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 then you try to load it on the iPhone, just try to get it loaded on the iPhone was in you know, certificates and IDs and also the security stuff. And then it wouldn't work and you have to figure out why and you'd have to look up these weird solutions online. And then even if you could test it on an iPhone, getting it to actual, actually, you know, be signed for distribution and submitted to the app store was all this stuff. It's a pain. It's a real pain, but it's gotten a lot better. And he talks about how uh, it was a pain to do this before, but now with AI, it's better. I don't think with AI, it's better. I think it's actually just gotten better. Right. Like it definitely, like I've been doing, I mean, my earliest iPhone development, I probably, I was a couple of years behind. So it was probably like 2009 was probably the first time I said, or maybe 2010 was probably the first time I submitted something. And, um, but then as recently as like, you know, I've updated things this year. Um, so, and I could tell you, it's a lot nicer now. It's a lot more, it's a lot gentler. It's a lot like, oh, here's what you've got wrong. It's right. a lot like, it's a lot more like here, let's, let's just do the certificate automatically for you. I have your developer ID. I have the app ID. I can do the certificate for you automatically. And it's like, yes, please. Why haven't you been doing that all along? You know, um, <laughs> So I think it's like, yeah, AI may make it easier, but I think it's also gotten easier without AI. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff like that. And that's kind of a, it's one of the fallacy, like a general, like logical fallacy too, is saying, oh, something's changed. I'm going to say it's AI that made things better. When in fact, well, no, you're not sampling the same data. You're, you're comparing like how to make an app, you know, in 2017 to how to make an app in 2023. Right. Um, and you're saying because it's better now, it must be because of the AI. Well, it also could be because a lot of other things have changed since 2023. Um, and, you know, in the end, this article actually comes to a decent conclusion. I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> it's not right. that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, it comes to a decent conclusion that, man, it's not really going to replace programmers. Um, so well, kind that's... of like the premise, because uh, we're used to reading articles. Hey, uh, we'll... AI replaced coders. It's like, oh, this is going to make a case for that being true. Right. And in fact, this article kind of took a very measured approach and at the end came to the conclusion, eh, probably not. It's funny because it's something I've been thinking about off and on uh, as soon as I you know, saw examples of people using chat GPT and other AIs to literally generate code. I stumbled across a uh, statistic earlier, actually this morning again, I think, and it was that something like, 52% uh, of all code generated by AI right now uh, is wrong. Um, yeah. It has an it has an error in it of some sort. That's yeah. not to say it isn't valuable, right? It's a starting point for somebody who's writing the code, and they can, you know, obviously, usually and, the bugs are pretty easy to see and, and solve. And can I point out that uh, probably much higher than 52% of the code generated by humans, including good programmers, is yes. wrong. That's yes. why we have to, like, <laughs> write code and then edit right. it, debug it. <laughs> Um, yeah. But so it, it dawned on me, though, that that throughout the life of technology, computers specifically, there's been a progression that is very similar. And I suspect that this is not necessarily as new as people think it is. For example, when computers were first created, they were programmed using machine code. In other words, you know, people would be 
toggling switches on a board or entering hexadecimal numbers that correspond to the instructions. Then that transition to writing in assembly language. So mm. you would write something that was a little bit more human readable and it would go through a process that would turn it into machine code that in then you know, would be the program that runs. Then we came up with higher level languages, things like Fortran and COBOL. And today we're doing all sorts of languages um, that you know you've probably heard of, Python and others, that again, it's another level of abstraction that makes things easier for humans to comprehend and to write out and to have it be translated back into the machine code that actually runs on your system. I see this as really just another step in that path. AI is just another way to create code. AI does nothing on its own. It's not going to dream up programs to be written. And in fact, it's not going to dream up the specifics of what those programs should look like. The mm. job of a programmer may change. Um, just like today, most programmers do not write in assembly language. And I don't know of any that write in uh, um, you know, direct machine code, except for those actually creating new processors, I guess. But they're all writing in some kind of a higher level language. And yeah, that may change at some point where instead of writing in a high level language, we'll be describing what it is we want to something that might, we might now refer to as an AI. But the fact is somebody still has to describe it. Somebody still has to know what logically makes sense. Somebody still has to understand how computers work in order for them to be able to describe an application or whatever it is that actually makes sense. And then, yeah, turn that description over to an AI but the description still has to be right in the first place. Mm, so yeah. I just I just see it as another transition um, along the way. And uh, it doesn't necessarily scare me. Um, it's a change in the way we might interact with machines. It certainly isn't going to happen overnight. So that part is, I don't think, going to have to worry anybody. But, uh, you know, the fact is, I've long said that uh, everybody benefits from understanding coding just because it teaches you to think in a certain way that works really, really well with today's technology. I don't think that's going to go away. And yeah. in fact, I think being able to think in that way will make you a better describer of programs to the AI when that finally comes around. So yeah, like I said, it, it's, I don't think this is the waning days of the craft at all. I think the craft is simply changing as it always has been changing. Um, this is just another part of the evolution. Yeah. He actually even mentions in the article, um, a an old essay about, about from a computer scientist um that uh you know uh, the idea is it's the, the reason you wouldn't shouldn't be able to program computers by just asking computers in english and telling them what to do mm -hmm. is because the specialized language of computer code uh is actually better than english at describing what needs to be done like there's a reason that there's a specialized language, like whether it's C++ or Swift or Java or whatever, mm -hmm. Python, you know, uh, and that 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 may hold true here is you're asking an AI to to do something, to accomplish something using English. That's the wrong language. Uh, the, the right language would be, say, Python. Uh, but if you can speak it in Python, well, you're speaking what the result is. So I, I don't know. It's a fascinating kind of thing. Um I see it and, more as go ahead. Oh, and I, I was going to say another uh, aspect is uh, you know I've always found it fascinating to try to differentiate uh, the different types of coders or programmers. 
because you know back when I was young, we used to talk about the difference between a software engineer and a computer scientist. <laughs> and those things still exist. You still go to different like degree programs for those. Yes. And um, you know, you're the way you think uh, and the way you code, I think, is different between software engineers and computer scientists. And then there's other types of coders, more practical types of coders now uh, that are neither. Um, and then there's certainly people that just take in their own track and they're they're not software engineers or computer scientists. They're people that, you know, are hackers, you know, original <laughs> hackers or artists that actually right. have extended their art into designing computer code. So maybe right. software designers or something. I, I don't know. A lot of different ways to take it. And I think that AI will replace a lot of people um, that are in a certain area where they're basically doing exactly what AI does with code now, you know, they're very similar to that, where yes. they can actually create or come up with an interesting solution to something, uh, but they can, you know, you can tell them, I want you to get from point A to point B, and they'll say, oh, I can do that. You know, here's all the steps I can put that together. Uh, that's been a very valuable skill, but that that particular type of coder, that may be going away. Their job's changing, though. My position is that they're not going away. That kind of a job will change, or there will be a different job that will well, take I, its place. My, I, so I the, disagree. The, the 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 scenario that I think is that 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 I am conceptualizing is simply this: in an ideal world, and you will laugh. In an ideal world, there is a description of the product you want that you then yes. hand to the programmers, yes. who then turn that description into code, into code, and into an actual yes. functional program. So the concept here is we would take that description of what we want and hand it to an AI. What we will find is exactly what makes that description so very frustrating for programmers today is that the description will be incomplete or inconsistent or all right. sorts of issues. And it's an incremental process back and forth between programmers and designers to finally decide what the program should do. There will be an increase of importance on that initial specification phase that says, okay, these are the details that matter. These are the things that we need to figure out before we tell the AI to make it happen. Those are the people that they exist to some degree now, but those are the people for which there will be a greater demand. It's much like the AI prompt engineers we keep hearing about today. That's a very, you know, a growing, a growing field. If you know how to write a, an AI prompt in a particular way to get a desired result, you're valuable. That I think will be very, very true in the software realm as well. It's just a different job. These are the, this is where some of these people, the, the individuals may not necessarily transfer there, but I think that the number of people doing the job will tilt from people who actually are translating um, uh, product specifications into code to people that are making sure product specifications can be understood by an AI. By an AI. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. What I meant before was not that those people will have their jobs replaced, not at all. It's the people, like if you think of a software team, you've definitely got that person that needs to understand what the, the customer wants. You know, mm -hmm. whether the customer is another department in your company or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, that person, th their job safe. <laughs> yeah. But on the yeah. team, on yes. the team may be a coder who doesn't do that at right. all. And right. they don't also do the computer sciencey stuff of trying to figure right. out a creative solution. They're right. the one you asked to design the login page, as it right. were. <laughs> like the, the stuff where it's like, well, we need people like that. We can't have our, you know, uh, highly trained, you know, PhD in computer science 
figuring that out. We can, we don't right. want the person that can talk to the client figuring that out. We don't want the genius who comes up with the whole like, here's the software overall and how it's going to look and work. But we do need people on staff that will do things like design the, you know, or code the login page. And that's basically, here's the spec. Here's a sheet. That's the spec. Right. Make that. Turn that into code. Yeah, make the code for that. That's your job for this month. And then, you know, you're done and we got that piece done. That's who I think could be taken. AI can replace that person because one of those other people can do it, whether it's the, you know, computer scientist or the, the you know, the forward facing customer person um, well, who, who actually the point... asked the AI to do it. But, you know, the, you know. the point that I'm trying to make, I suspect, is that what we give the AI will need to be more detailed and more complete right. than what we give programmers today, which implies we will need more more people, more trained people to create those definitions. So maybe, maybe the total, I, I the total think number of jobs I don't think is going to change. I think it's just the balance of what kinds yeah. of people are doing what. Um, the other thing that AI won't be able to do, probably for some time, if ever, um, is innovate. Right. Whatever yeah. the AI is doing with code, it's stuff that has been seen before, some stuff that has been done before. It's mm -hmm. just being able to pull from these massive resources of examples and put them together in, in appropriate ways. But will it ever actually be able to um, come up with something absolutely conceptually and dramatically new? I don't think so. Again, not for a while. I think that still requires people. Yep. As a side note, um, my background, uh, I graduated with a degree in electrical engineering, so I went into a software engineering path, mm -hmm. and uh, we definitely had a separate um, engineering and computer science school. Uh, one of the things that cracks me up in hindsight is that you know I spent three and a half years working at a small company in Seattle before I went to Microsoft. And when I went to Microsoft, um, it turns out I had no concept of a lot of what are fundamental computer science concepts. Um, mm. I had no clue what a linked list was. I had no clue what memory management was. I had no clue, you know, a bunch of different things. That doesn't mean I wasn't doing them. Um, it just meant I didn't have the language and the terminology that the computer science people had uh, that would able, be able for them to be able to describe uh, what it was they were doing. I just, you know, like in one case, I was doing what turned out to be some fairly effective memory management stuff that I had no idea was a thing, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. um, and, and so, yes, they're definitely two different tracks going uh, going in parallel. Yeah. Anyway, uh -huh. so uh, what's cool this week? I I have a hard time calling this one cool, but I think it's probably important uh, this The book that I'm talking about is What's Our Problem? A Self-Help Book for Societies. It's by Tim Urban, the guy who does a website called Wait But Why. He actually has published some very interesting essays in the past, although he's been quiet for a while since he's been working on this book. And what he's doing is he's trying to look at the underlying cause for the division in society today. And he has some really interesting models, some interesting concepts that he uses to make these things understandable and digestible. And honestly, uh, you know, it actually caused me to question some of the assumptions I have, uh, both not about both sides, right? My side, the other side, whatever side. And it's definitely a book that will challenge some of your thinking. 
And if you're open to it, it will at least help you understand uh, a little bit better what the other side is thinking, why they're doing what they're doing and why what's going on is going on. So um, it's a book I can recommend. Like I said, it's, it's, I have a hard time saying it's cool because we tend to think of cool as being, you know, um, happy, enjoyable, laid back, kind of relaxing things. This is a thought piece. This is something that relates to the problems that society has today. But I think those problems are important. And this is a good book to get a different kind of view on it. Cool. Um, so I'm doing something that I'm sure brought a smile to your face once you saw it appear on our document, our shared documents. Yes. Yes. Um, I, so I've always been, I've always, I, I'm a huge sci-fi fan and always have been. Mm -hmm. One part of sci-fi that I've not been into, but have appreciated has been Star Trek, the Star Trek okay. universe. Yep. Um, I've always appreciated that it's good sci-fi, that it's quality. Um, I've always been, when I was younger, into the more gritty sci-fi. So yep. in other words, Star Wars instead of Star Trek. Right. Um, but recently, uh, kind of like... Just dealing with the news from all over the world over the last several years right. has made me look for nicer things. Like I used to be watch like post-apocalyptic zombie shows all the time, and now I just don't have the stomach for them anymore. It's like, oh, yeah, we're, so we're living that. So why? We're living all that. So I try to decide like, you know, after finishing one long series of TV, it's like, what what's next? And I decided to start and rewatch the original Star Trek, which... I only saw these episodes when I was very, very young in mm -hmm. probably the initial reruns of the seventies when I was a little kid, really. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I'm rewatching them now with a, a grown up adult, uh, mature eyes uh, mm -hmm. after decades and decades of reading science fiction and, uh, and thinking a lot about everything. And so now I'm, I'm most of the way through the first season and I am in awe of how good it is wow uh the mostly the scripts yes i could not i mean i the fact that this these were television scripts from the 60s yes uh, for science fiction uh it just blows me away because uh not only do they you know of course everybody talks about how they deal with a lot of issues that a lot of other shows weren't dealing with in right. the 60s but even just the logic puzzles and the the character development uh and how they i, I don't know how it just there's so much sophistication in them even to the point where like I'm not able to like I I'm tricked into thinking from my modern mind of seeing modern TV that oh this is where this episode's going and it doesn't go there <laughs> and I'm like it went to uh, that's a much better ending than where I thought this was going to go that right. makes a lot more sense and it's much more much better written so I'm just I'm blown away by by that and the funny thing is is that I just happened to watch an episode that ties into what we were talking about earlier uh there was an episode where uh Spock was or, or Kirk was um uh court-martialed uh, there was a trial because the computer's information about how events transp transpired differed from what he said they were uh, uh -huh. he said he he pressed this button to to basically kill a guy because there was no other choice right after a red alert right. uh, was issued and they said no you didn't issue the red alert first therefore you know you have to give up being a starship captain he says no and he sticks to his gun i am absolutely sure i did this and then they showed the video and the video showed him doing the opposite 
And even after that, he was like, that's not what happened. And it turned out the computer was wrong. And it explains, you know, the rest of the episode goes into what actually happened. But I was like, when you mentioned AI hallucinating, you know, I was like, wow, I was watching this episode of Star Trek from 1966. And it had basically the computer hallucinating. Um, It's interesting. I I did the same thing as you. I didn't um, uh, watch Star Trek first run. It wasn't until it was in reruns and showing up, I think, every afternoon. So I'd watch it after school. Um, but then yes, I was watching every episode multiple times, but yeah, it's, um, it's well known for, um, you know, tackling moral issues, usually, um, you know, from the side by, 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 um, uh, what's the word, a metaphor rather than throwing it in your face, but, uh, oh, there's, there's an episode of the first season. Also, I guess, you know, the, the Romulans are introduced in an episode with the idea that there was a war with them, but we never saw them. You know, so we don't have no idea what they look like. Mm-hmm. And during this episode, the first time they see them, and guess what? They're basically Vulcans. And immediately, <laughs> immediately there's suspicion on Spock. Right. Is he a spy? Is he, you know, one, it, it, who's he working for? All this stuff. And Kirk calls out racism yep. in the episode. And, you know, when I first saw that, I was like, hey, I was like, Man, there's a there's there's a serious thing that could go on here, but surely they're not going to address it during this episode. And not only do they address it, but within five minutes of me thinking that and head on directly. And I was like, wow, that's that's really impressive. I would expect a show today to perhaps miss that. And here's a show in 1966, didn't miss it at all. So, so and it wasn't the main point of the episode at all. You know, it was just this side thing that went on. So you're partway through the first season. Yeah, part. Uh, yeah, I think most. Well, I guess the seasons were particularly long. I can't believe how many episodes. Back in the day, most TV seasons were twenty-eight yeah. episodes or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so I guess I mean I feel like I'm most of the way through the season, but I'm actually probably just, uh, just part uh, past halfway through. Yeah. It's, well, it's, you've it's, got some good stuff ahead of you. There are oh, some clunkers along the way, of course, but um, yeah. But yeah, it's. Um, I'm glad to hear you come to the uh, to the Star Trek side. It's it's yeah it's and it is it is working indeed uh, for my original intentions. Just even though of course they're dealing with situations where things aren't working out and they have to mm-hmm. solve problems. Still, this whole idea that it's in the future and they have Starfleet and they've got they're exploring and then there's you know all this going on. It, it does make me. It does. I don't know. It, it's a nice antidote, I guess, a mental yeah. antidote to. Yes, yeah, it's. Uh, um... It's very aspirational. Um, yeah, it makes aspirational. assumptions that that you know humanity in the long run is doing the right thing. There's a lot of things that are just assumed that are quite um, quite controversial right now that we may or may not ever get to. But yeah, it's I agree. It's it's it was fun. Yeah. Cool. Uh, let's see, blatant self-promotion. So I think I've probably mentioned this article here before, but it's an important one that I want to throw out again. Um, I revved it last week or something like that. My computer is infected with malware. Should I just throw it out? Um, I continue to get that as a knee-jerk reaction from folks when, of course, there's mm. just no reason. So yeah. um, we explain why in uh, askleo.com slash 8296. Cool. And I want to point out a an episode that runs actually tomorrow. Um, and it's a, a 
it, Apple's gotten to the point now where they've announced everything they're going to announce for the end of the year, right? right. So it's a quiet time. Uh, and probably into the new year, you know, at least we have most of the month of January probably. So it's a nice time to actually go and come out with a kind of an episode that says, what Mac should you buy? Because any other time of the year, you can come out with an episode and then find that the next week something new has come out. And exactly. Thrown in. So I <laughs> so I created, I tried, to, this is the first time I've actually ever done this. I tried to create a single episode that's a, a kind of comprehensive, which Mac should I buy uh, episode going, looking at all the different models and trying to give you some direction. Of course, I can't tell you which one's right for you. Right. And I hate the bloggers that talk about it. I, I just you just need need to be aware of what the differences are really between yep. the different Macs, and yep. then look at your needs and your budget, and then figure out the right ones for you. But hopefully, uh, time for people making that decision, time watching my video will be well spent. Cool. So yeah, you said it was kind of a quiet time. With that in mind, um, mm -hmm. Gary and I have decided to basically go on hiatus for the month of December. Yeah, um, this is our last episode then for 2023, except except um, if something notable happens in the intervening weeks. But our plan right now is to relax for Thanksgiving, have a quiet December and Christmas, and come back to you all in January of the new year, 2024, which is already starting to feel hard to believe. In the future. In the yeah. future, yes. yes. Um, so with that in mind, thanks as always for listening to us, and uh, we will be back next year. Yeah. See ya. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh210. If you have a comment or question for us, be sure to leave it on the show notes page. The TEH Podcast is hosted by Leo Notenboom of askleo.com and Gary Rosenzweig of macmost.com and edited by Connie Delaney. I'm your synthetic announcer, Adam, from 11labs.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you here real soon.